Please stand for the reading of God's word. As a reminder, we stand out of reverence and awe for God and his word. Today's scripture reading is Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 28. Likewise, the Spirit help us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Redemption Tucson. I am so happy, so happy that this day has finally come. I want to open up in prayer before we begin. Let us pray. Father God, as, um, as your spirit works through this service, Lord, I pray that the words that will come out of my mouth and the meditations that are in my heart, that you work through, Lord. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that is spontaneous, and thank you for the study of the word and the preparation time that both meet each other uh, and, bless, and bless people's hearts. Lord, I pray that the words that will be said here will, will be of you and will touch someone's heart this morning. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, let me get a few things out up front. Uh, I usually start sermons by saying, uh, God will hold me accountable uh, for the words that I'm going to speak in the next 30 minutes. Uh, James 3.1 says, not many of us to strive to be teachers because teachers will be judged more harshly. So as I stand before you as a congregation, I hold myself accountable as I study, as I pray through all of that. The other thing is, I come from an African-American tradition of preachers. So I'm a walker. I appreciate the talking. If you're by yourself, you want to say amen, that's okay. Uh, I like to hear that. I, we come from a tradition of kind of a dialogical narrative preaching. So if you feel the need to speak back, to talk back, it is okay with me. I actually prefer it because I want to know that you're not asleep out there. Okay. This day is a special day for me. Uh, a day I didn't see coming even eight months ago, um, even a year ago. I was sitting, I was on vacation in a small town of Spearfish, South Dakota, uh, when I got a phone call from a man named Tyler Johnson. Uh, I had been warned that he was going to call last June. Uh, he called me, and Tyler told me about a wonderful congregation in Tucson. He said, those folks, the pastor there, Dave Goffney, they're looking for a pastor. And he told me a lot. He told me about the leadership. He told me about the church. And he told me that, hey, we have looked at you for a year, and we were anxiously anticipating engaging you. So I was, I was happy. He said, how do you feel about moving to Arizona? I said, well, let me pray about it. So I hung up the phone. More appropriately, right, I pressed the red button. Nowadays, we're, we're cell phone people. And I went in and told my wife, Annie, I said, I just got a call from a guy named Tyler from, from, from uh, Phoenix, and he's saying, there's a church in Tucson that's looking for a pastor. I received a job description a few weeks later, a few months later, um, Hours and hours of conversation with Dave, the direction team here, the elders here, uh, people in the congregation, had conversations with pastors who have left redemption, who are still on redemption, uh, too many to name, just trying to, to, to make a decision, to move my family, to 
better discern the call. But a job description, we all know, does not make a pastor. Um, a pastor is made when a call is really clear to a set of people. A covenant. That's why it's hard when pastors leave congregations. The people are torn because we pastors, pastors from womb to tomb, they say, right? We con- you consult us about who to marry, where to go to school, uh, where to move, school, travel, business, spiritual direction, and all decisions. We are a part of your life. So it becomes clear that the call is combined with the acknowledgement and the submission of the people uh, to make that clear. Well, my friends now ask me, hey, so how's life going on in Tucson? How is pastoring in Tucson? I say, I haven't really met the folks that I'm pastoring yet. Uh, my mentor always reminded me when I was talking to him in November, he said, man, when you get to Tucson, here's your goal. Your goal is to gain 15 to 20 pounds. He said, you, you need to have as many lunches as possible, many coffees as possible with the people so you get to know them. And I stopped him. I said, hey, Brian, listen, <laughs> I'm way ahead of you there, right? I already gained 15 pounds in COVID. <laughs> and I haven't gotten to Tucson yet. In this season, I know it's difficult, and you may not know me personally. So as we walk through this next few, mom- few moments, it will feel like having lunch with me. It will feel like hearing me share. It'll feel somewhere in between a sermon and a testimony. It will feel somewhere in between knowing me personally and not knowing me at all. It will feel like some parts of the story are very foreign, but some parts of it is very familiar. It'll feel like a better understanding of God's sovereignty and simultaneously asking God why. It will feel at times like laughter, but it will feel at times like raw sorrow and tears. If you have your Bibles, let's get to the familiar passage of Romans 8, 28. If you aren't familiar with the Bible, Romans is in the New Testament, kind of the, the bottom, the, the left, the right side of your Bible, two-thirds of the way in after the, the Gospels and after the book of Acts. Paul is writing the letter to the Roman church in chapter 8, verse 28. He's answering some of the big questions of life, questions such as, does God control everything or do I have a say? What's my role? What's the role that God plays in the world? What are decisions, my decisions? How do they factor in to how the world rolls on and keeps going? Verse 8 says this. Verse, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 28 says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Keywords, all things for good, those who are called and, and purpose. I've titled this sermon this morning, Through All Things, In All Things, God is in Charge. I'll walk through the questions about what are all things? How does God use the called and what is God's purpose? So what are all things? When the Bible says all things, obviously it means all things. This verse, if we're honest can be both comforting to us and discouraging, depending on your current circumstances. Uh, If it's a minor situation, you can say, 
oh, God's going to work it out. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be good. You know, it's easy to say that God's going to work this out according to his will. But when it gets to a point where it's a difficult conversation, we tend to say, why, God? Where are you in this? I thought I was your child. I often ask myself this question growing up. The question I asked myself was, how did I get here? I'm asking that question right now, actually. How did I get here in front of you? If you dig behind the question, right, you're really telling God, God, you lost me. I'm alone. I can't see, feel, or hear you. Anybody been there? The place where you ask God, where are you? How did I get here? I thought you did work all things for good. I don't see how you're going to redeem this. I don't see how you're going to redeem my life. I don't see where the good is going to come from. This. But all things means all things. Through all things, God is in charge. I grew up in a, in a small country in, in West Africa called Liberia. Liberia is named the land of liberty, founded by free slaves from the United States. I always tell my African-American brothers and sisters, if you're going to visit anywhere in Africa, forget the safaris in the East, come to Liberia. Because the people who left America as freed slaves ended up in Liberia. So there are Johnsons, Coopers, Jacksons in Liberia. Right? The last of six children, my brothers, I have four brothers and one sister, all way older than I am. Um, my dad was the assistant director for the Secret Service of the entire country and worked the same job for three consecutive leaders. My mother was illiterate and mopped floors at the University of Liberia. I spent my days with my mother. Uh, when I started to go to school, my mother started to learn from me. I started to teach her ABCs, the one, two, threes, two-letter words, all those things. Christmas of 1988, I'm, eight, I'm almost I'm nine years old, and my mother mysteriously gets sick. Uh, it doesn't last long. My mother is sick, and we take her to every Western doctor in Liberia. We cannot find a cure of why she's sick. Uh, and the sickness just drains her. I go and see her in the hospital. I go and see her in doctor's offices. I go and see her in witch doctor's offices. And within four months, my mother loses her life. And I can tell you, I'm going I'm to tell you distinctly, uh, these, the, the few weeks after my mother lo lost her life, I am sitting... After my mother loses her life, I, start, I stop going to school. My brothers are trying to comfort me because I'm nine years old. And during the wake, uh, preceding the funeral, they bring the casket and they put the casket in my living room. It may seem odd to Americans, but in, in West African culture, when someone passes away, all the neighbors, all the friends come and stay at your house, actually, so you're not alone for 40 days. And so the casket is, the wake is in my house, and the casket is sitting in the living room. And my dad gets a little step stool. And he puts the step stool next to the casket. And I climb up on the step stool. And I look down at my mother. And my, my tears are dripping on the glass. It could have been 20 minutes. It could have been three hours. I'm standing there. And you know the question I ask myself. How did we get here? God, where are you? Because I have prayed a sincere and fervent prayer 
that God would keep my mother alive. That prayer was not answered. A few days later, I'm sitting by the graveside and they're tossing dirt onto the casket and they're burying my mother. And I'm holding onto my dad's hip and his leg. He's crying, trying to be strong. I'm crying, trying to be strong. And I remember the church that we had just walked out of was a Methodist church. But a year earlier, the pastor was preaching a sermon. The sermon, ironically, was on Lazarus and Jesus raising the dead. And I said, God, can you do this one miracle for me? He doesn't answer. A few months later, this happened in, this is May of 1989. A few months later, in December of 89, a civil war breaks out in Liberia, of which my family is a target. Um, they're overthrown a dictator, Samuel Doe. We have the same last name. My dad works for the government. And there is ethnic cleansing. I'm not of the same tribe as a government leader, but my dad works for him, and they're overthrowing the government. And those folks who are overthrowing the government make a promise that if your last name is Doe, or you work, or you have any connection with the government, we are going to kill you. Based on my last name, based on my father's work, I was in line to be killed. The fighting quickly makes it to my neighborhood, and my dad sits me down as the youngest kid and says, I don't know how we're going to survive this war, because we can't get out. Airports have been taken over, road routes have been taken over. He says, I'm going to send you to live with your older brother in hiding. You're going to change your last name, and hopefully this war passes us over. The fighting does reach my neighborhood, and the rebels, the people who are trying to take over the government, are true to their word. They're killing people ruthlessly inside. I lived in hiding for months. I ate one meal a day for months, and it wasn't a gourmet meal. It was rice and salt rice and whatever greens we could find, things that we thought were edible, we didn't know. There was no running water, no toothpaste, no deodorant, none of the amenities. I packed my clothes for, my dad said three weeks, so I had five sets of clothes. Those were the clothes I had. I didn't always have those clothes for years. Whenever I left the house every day during the war, I would pack my things so that no one would have to clean up after me in case I got killed. I had resigned myself that I wouldn't live to see the age of 12. You know what question I asked myself? How did I get here? A year earlier, I'm in upper middle class. I go to a private school. We have a driver, someone to wash my clothes, someone to cook for us. And here I am, being hunted. We escaped Liberia, my brother and I, on a ship and ended up in a country as refugees, a country called Ghana, two countries over. Um, while in Ghana as a refugee, by the way, side note, when you are a refugee, people treat you like you're absolutely nothing. Um, I started going to school in another country, had to learn two new languages. Suffered malaria more times than I had hot meals. School was hard for me. 
poverty. I wore the same pairs of shoes. They were so worn out that I would take them off, walk to school barefoot, and then put my shoes back on. My, my underwear was non-existent. And my friends laughed. The kids I hung up with laughed. I was in Ghana for about two years when my brother and his wife decided they were going to go back to Liberia because the peace had been established back home, and I told them I did not want to go. So they left me in Ghana as a 12-year-old with a family that had a farm. I worked a family farm. It wasn't a big farm. They had pigs and, and, and corn, and I was living life that way. And there were days when I would sit amongst the pigs and ask myself, where are you, God? How did I get here? My brother returned to Ghana a few months later, and he handed me a letter. He, having not processed his grief, uh, said to me, hey, this is a letter that I got from one of our brothers. My brother, who was the closest in age to me, I recognized his handwriting on the envelope, and it, someone had told him that we were in Ghana, and he handed my brother the letter. He was still in hiding. And I got the letter, and I opened the letter. I was so joyous. Oh, my brother is still alive. The rest of my family, perhaps, is still alive. And I open the letter and I start reading. And immediately it became clear. As my brother starts telling me, um, I want to tell you that we are all still in hiding. And I'm still eating one meal a day. But the main part of the letter uh, was what changed my life forever. He said, our dad turned himself into rebels because they were looking for my dad everywhere in the country. <laughs> he was interrogated. <sighs> and my father was killed. My father was brutally murdered <laughs> on August 24th, 1990. I had been an orphan for a year and a half, and I didn't know. And I asked God, because I had been praying for a year and a half, God, please let my father survive. Because my father was my number one hero. And when my mother died, I clung to my father like nothing else. And here I was, 11 years old. Within 18 months, both of my parents are dead. I went from a mama's boy to nobody's boy. All my heartfelt prayers, not answered. And I said, God, are you really in charge? I started to get distant. You can understand why. Because the thorn that was planted in my heart in those days was because my brother told me the man who killed my father. I will never say his name in public. Um, but I resigned myself to saying, one day I'm going to find this man and I'm going to exact retribution. I was sitting in the back of a church class um, at a church we used to go to and they were singing this song. Red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. You know that song? I'm not going to sing it because I don't want folks to lead the room. I don't want folks to turn off because I can't hold nothing. So... People bend and shut their, phone, shut their computers off saying, man, I was with him till he started singing. <laughs> I won't sing. But that song, I saw my color in that song. 
I saw myself in that song, and I couldn't see myself in God's sovereignty. Many of you know what I'm talking about in your life, where where the rubber meets the road, I always say, but you didn't hit the brakes, right? Maybe it's a cancer diagnosis right now. Maybe your child is off the rails. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe your plans are dashed, and you're thinking, what good is going to come out of this? There I was, an orphan, poor, sickly, a foreigner in a land that really people didn't want. While I was going through all this, people would say to me, with the best of intentions, they would read this verse I just read to you, and all things work together for good to those who love God. I'm saying, God, but I do love you. How come you're not working out? I'm begging you as a pastor, when people are going through things, don't say that verse haphazardly. Be present for people to cry with. And only when they ask for a tissue do you hand them a tissue. Because tears are part of life's experience. God uses all of it to bring us to the place that he wants us in. To prepare us for what he's called us to. So how is God going to use my sorrow in this life? Through all things, in all things, God is in charge. So who are those who are called? And how do I know I was called? God draws each of us to himself. Right? When God draws you to himself, and I need you to hear me, hear me on this one. When God draws you to himself, he has a purpose for you. He did not just save you so that you can go to heaven and escape hell. There's a life of discipleship and a purpose that he calls you to. Too many people I hear, oh, you know, I prayed the prayer and now I'm free. Right? So there I was. God's drawing me, and I don't realize it. He's drawing me. Fast forward a little bit in my story. I go through the process as a refugee. I go through the interviews. They, you know, when you, they, when the United States CIA agents or immigration officials show up at the refugee camp, the line's out the door, and people are trying to get out of the refugee camp, and we finally get called in, and you go through this interview process, and they ask you the same 30 questions, 15 different ways, 30 different people, and every week, and you're doing it a year and a half, and you're going through this thing, and they're making sure you're not lying. They're, you know, they're doing their due diligence so that when people come into this country, it's done. So I think I would like to push back on, 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 the, on the, the refugee situation to say, man, they really do the work on the other side. People don't just buy tickets and come to the States. We can buy tickets to go, but they don't buy tickets to come. So there I was. Finally been accepted to come to the United States. I come to the United States, and you can imagine, an African boy in, in, in Boston, Massachusetts in March. May not mean a lot to you folks in Tucson, but the snow, the cold. I had never seen temperatures below 75, and it was 35. I walked out of that airport and walked right back in. I started school here, and it, I'm just a mess because of the trauma, all the things that I've seen in the war. 
which by the way, I would say God has a great sense of humor because I survived war where I saw F-16s do what they do. So when I'm standing in Tucson and I see those planes flying overhead, I get a certain feeling, if you know what I'm saying. Um, I, I make it through high school. I'm, I'm, I'm talking barely. Literally, my English teacher says, I went to her a week before graduation. He says, you're going to make it by the skin of your teeth. I graduated and I have no plans. I have nothing. I don't know where to go. Uh, my folks, my brother and his wife, they have their kids and I have no idea where to go. So I start working. I'm working at Burger King and I'm working at Kohl's and I have no future. I try to go to the army. They rejected me, right? I'm down in the dumps. Depression is not even the word I could use, but that's where I was. I'm in the basement and thinking, God, how did I get here? All my friends are gone to college. And on December 24th, 1998, my brother, who's the only family member I still knew was alive because the war is still going on in Liberia, has a massive heart attack. My brother, who was just like my father, another hero, is in a coma. And I'm thinking, God, do you care? So December 26, 1989, 1998, sorry, I get down on my knees in the basement and I don't pray the sinner's prayer. I just pray a prayer of desperation. If you've prayed a prayer of desperation, you know what I'm talking about, right? Your tears, the snot, everything. And I said, God, can you just do something in this life? Can you answer one prayer? I start walking with the Lord as best I know how. Uh, no discipleship. i able to work my way and get to college. I graduate college. I take a job at a Christian school, and I'm teaching. And we take the students on a trip, uh, kind of a, an outdoors trip with sixth graders. And the verse of the week is, you know, I don't, I don't even think about it. Yeah, we're taking these kids. We're going to go have fun. You know, we're jumping ropes. You know, you're climbing all this stuff. An adventure camp. And the verse of the week was Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Here I am, Lord, send me. And my co-teacher looks at me and said, we should pray this, this prayer on one of these kids because God's going to call them into ministry. So let's pray. <laughs> <laughs> and we're praying. And I hear this voice. It says, you're not praying this prayer for you, these kids. This verse is actually for you. No job description, but a calling. No education, but a calling. No people, but a calling. No training, but a calling. I don't want it. I'm asking God, can you bless what I have planned? You been there? Lord, can you just sprinkle a little bit of holy dust on the plans that I have, <laughs> right? Can you do that for me? What God was telling me in those times is like, I'm not going to fix your past, Marcus. I'm going to redeem it. The mess, the grief, the poverty, the pain. Some of you, maybe even some of your addictions. God's going to redeem it. It's not what we would ask for. It's not what I ask for, but it's God's sovereignty and our actions meeting us at, at this place.
Isaiah 6.8, by the way, I have tested, and I can show you in my New King James Bible the dates of when I would walk into a church deeply doubting the call that God has placed on my life, and that pastor will be preaching that verse. I can take a picture of it and send it to you. I have the dates. My, 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 my wife, my, my girlfriend at the time, Annie and I, tested it. One Saturday night, we went to a church, Calvary Aurora, in, in, in Colorado. And we sat down. And I said, if it happens right here, then I know. <laughs> it did. I have those dates. So what is God's purpose for you, for myself? In those days, I began thinking really deeply, God, this was 2004. What is my purpose? I know I've shared a lot of painful things, but the last thing I'm going to share that's really painful was the hardest part of this story. Yeah, my mom's death is hard. My father's death is unthinkably hard. Here's what God said he's going to use. I'm reading my Bible one morning, and I'm reading it. I'm reading the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6. Right after the Lord's Prayer, it says, Jesus says, if you do not forgive those who sin against you, I will not forgive you. That's my, my translation, me reading through the white letters, but that's what, that, that's, you get the gist of it. This is 2008. And I, all these years, I have this man in my heart that I hate and I want to see dead. And God says, that's where I'm going to use you. Reconciliation. How can I forgive the man who made me an orphan? How can I forgive the man who brutally murdered my hero? How can I sit in the same room with him? The hard work of forgiveness. I traveled to Liberia after two years of working this thing out to find that man. And God gave me a heart for people who do harm to others. I didn't want it. I tell this story all the time, but I'll tell it again. I'm sitting in a barber shop with former soldiers who had just wreaked havoc in Liberia, killing people indiscriminately as teenagers. They're in my they're 30 years old in in kind of my age bracket, and they don't have a they don't have someone caring for them or nothing in that country. And I'm sitting there. And I say, you know, I'm going to go to this barber shop and let, let the guys cut my hair. It's a small shop. And the guy who was cutting my hair is using a razor and he's on my neck and he's doing this. And he asked me, he said, what's your name? And I say, my name is Marcus Doe. You don't understand. 20 years later, that man is going to kill me. And he says, he pulls the blade back. He said, say that again. And I said, Marcus Doe, he said, you used to live right there down the street? And I said, yes. He said, we were looking for people like you. And I said to him, I said, I'm looking for folks like you. <laughs> Believe me, it was a great conversation, but it, 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 it gave me a heart. 
um, a heart that says he committed a crime, but he's not the worst thing that he's ever done. Um, he's not the monster that I imagined. They're not the monsters that we imagined. So I was still struggling with this thing, and I took the, I tried to take the Jonah route, route. I ran as a guy, but I still have this plan. You know? I still kind of want to go to law school. I want to go into politics. I want to do all these things. God, nope, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. Clearly, I'm in, I'm in, I can explain this later, but I'm in, I'm in a summer camp in, in, in Naples, Maine, right? And I go to the small church every summer when I go to summer camp. And the pastor at that church one, at one point said, Marcus, can I take you to lunch? You come here all the summer. I mean, there's a big difference. Maine is 96% white. And so I'm one of the few people who people of color there. So he takes me to lunch and we start eating. And he said, man, you come here every summer. Tell me your story. He didn't know what he was in for. <laughs> right? I tell him the story. And prophetically, he looks at me. He said, whatever you have planned for your life, let it go. Because God's going to change you. God's going to change that plan. This is July of 2008. And from that moment, I had trouble eating because <laughs> I knew that, man, I don't want to be in a pulpit. How did I get here? <laughs> but God has a purpose. He has a purpose. Let me remind you this morning as I close that the sovereignty of God is a long view of life. I'm not here with you today if those things didn't happen. God knew this day would come. When I was sitting there with tears coming down my face, landing on the glass and, and looking at my mother in the casket, he knew this day would come. When I was sitting there, tears coming down my eyes and going into my ears with malaria, he knew this day would come. When I cried and hoped the war would stop, he knew this day would come. Somewhere around this city, somebody is sitting there right now with tears and hoping this day would come. Stay with it. Stay with him. Because through all things, in all things, God is in charge. God's sovereignty makes this verse comforting. Our ability to see the future as human beings is very limited. The, un the, the understandability of God's sovereignty is beyond our ability to understand. God works both in our joy and in our sorrow. God works in human selfishness and in altruism. God works through sickness and in health. He is working. You may not have done this in school, but I did it when I, when I got to the United States. Because I, I, we always see things, we see the good and we don't acknowledge God most of the time, but when the bad happens, we blame him, right? Here's what I used to do, and if you, you don't have to raise your hand. I don't want to put you out there. But when I got an A in a class, you know what I said? I got an A. When I got an F, you know what I said? The teacher gave me an F. The same thing happens with, with God, right? When we're sitting there and things are good, we're by the fire, maybe we've got an adult beverage. You don't say, God, where are you? But when, 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 it, when the rubber meets the road and things are going wrong, then we ask that question. We blame God when things are bad and take credit when things are good. We are prone to ask, where is God 
when things are rough. He's always there. He's always there. God is working even in the best of times and we are in the worst of times and definitely in between. Sometimes when we don't notice in the mundane, uh, God sees both the long and the short. See, as Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity, he says, God, human beings, we work, we work on a linear basis. We can go from minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day. God doesn't work that way. He said the line on the page, God is like that whole page. To him, everything is now. This was clear to me when I went back to the story of Lazarus. The story that I wish would come true for me. Jesus walks up to Lazarus' tomb, and the Bible says Jesus wept. Not because he didn't understand the sovereignty of God, but because his human side understands that the pain. He cried in his full humanness for his friend. So it's okay to go through the pain with people. But he knew, Jesus knew, that was temporary. Even in the moment he's crying, he knows that this is temporary. Second Peter says, for God, a thousand days is like a year, and a year is like a thousand days. As I lay in bed on the last day I was in Liberia, having searched for the man who took my father's life, it became clear that God would use my greatest pain, my sincerest, most unanswered prayers as the greatest way for him to share his glory through me. And I cried. That's not how I would have done it. If I could change it now, I would. But God knows better than me. He is getting the glory, not I. As you leave today, I don't want you to walk out of here thinking primarily, whoa, Marcus has an amazing story. That's not the point. Man, look how God worked in Marcus's life. I want you to walk out of here, put your computer down, and, and, and when, you, when this service is done, I want you to walk out of here with the acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. The purpose which, which only he can accomplish with those he has called to himself who have truly surrendered and said, God, here I am. Send me through all things, in all things. God is in charge. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you, I honor you, I praise you, I surrender to you. You are in all and through all. You are King of kings and Lord of lords, and we surrender to you. God, I thank you for using just a little bit of my voice to perhaps encourage someone out there to see Jesus in the gospel more clearly, to see God more clearly. Thank you, Lord, for the grace that you've had on my life and what you've done in the lives of people. In Jesus' name, amen.